Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, the 19th chapter. Revelation 19. And let's read this morning. Please follow along as I read aloud Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming again. As I often do, I wondered this week in preparing this sermon, I wondered how many times within these walls those words have been said, those words have been sung, these truths have been taught and celebrated. It's also the case that we say them somewhat rarely these days. We preach this truth not often. It's almost as though in the sophistication of our current age, in the technological advancement, with all of the intellectualism that we all swim in, it's possible that we become embarrassed about this fundamental truth that one day, physically, really, Jesus Christ will return to rule upon the earth. One of our study Bibles says this is the single greatest promise in history. Regardless of whether we're embarrassed by it or not, regardless of whether we have neglected it to our fault, the truth is Jesus is coming again. Make no mistake about it. And I wonder what difference this would make in our lives. I wonder what, what difference this would make in my life, in your life. I wonder what difference, if we really believed this, if we believed it and remembered it and preached it and sang it more faithfully, I wonder what difference it would make in churches like ours. I wonder what difference it would make in Santa Barbara on a Tuesday afternoon or on a Friday morning. I wonder what difference it would make in our wins and in our losses. What difference would it make with the idols we tend to set up and worship with our energy and our attention? I wonder how it would affect our fears. I wonder how it would mold our hopes. I wonder what it would mean in our relationships if we really remembered and believed that Jesus is coming again. We're in the middle of a study in the book of Revelation. And we've told you before that Revelation, it's understood in various ways, sometimes in ways that are not helpful. You remember we said 
on the one hand, although some people treat it this way, Revelation is not a calendar or an itinerary. Uh, it's not given to us to unfold some kind of precise chronology about the end days. Some people want to treat it that way. I understand that desire, but that doesn't seem the purpose. There are too many twists and turns in the book of Revelation. In response to that, though, and in a vast overreaction, there are some people who treat Revelation as though it's merely a travel log just kind of a picture book of trips that you took. The purpose of a travel log or a, a, a souvenir book is to evoke memories and to evoke emotions. And that's the way some people treat the book of Revelation, that all of these symbols don't really mean anything other than just to give us some vague sense of Jesus and the end times and what will come. That's also a mistake. Rather, the book of Revelation is a guidebook, a guidebook that's packed with information, and it reveals to us truths, though not necessarily in a precise chronology, but it reveals to us truths about the unfolding plan of God in the future, what God intends to do as God, the Creator, started history, what God and the ways in which God will wrap history up, what God will do. It's true that the book of Revelation is filled with symbolic language and symbolic images. We're going to see some of those today. Clearly not intended to be taken literally, but watch very carefully. The fact that there is symbolic language does not rule out the fact that these things represent literal events. Symbolism does not mean unreal Symbolism is merely a representation of what likely cannot even be put into language, but will one day indeed take place. And because the text that we read this morning, because the subject that we cover this morning, is really the summary of what the book of Revelation is about, it is the coming of Jesus Christ again. And because it's so central, I wonder if you'd go on a journey with me just quickly. Would you go back to chapter 1 with me, to Revelation chapter 1? Let's remind ourselves of where we began several months ago. In Revelation chapter 1, John records his initial vision of the Lord Jesus as he begins what is the Lord Jesus' revelation. And we see this in chapter 1 verse 4. Follow along please. And we'll go through these texts somewhat quickly, but I just want to give you a reminder of how we got to chapter 19. So look in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. How's that for a beginning? How's that for foreshadowing what's going to happen? And so you would likely be excused to be reading through the scroll of Revelation and be waiting for this to happen. This is a pretty dramatic scene that is promised. And yet we wait and we wait. The next time Jesus shows up, specifically in the Revelation, as far as a vision, 
is in chapter 5. Go over there with me. Turn to chapter 5 and look in chapter 5, look at verse 4. This is, picks up in the middle of a vision that Pastor Day preached through several months ago, but uh, bear with me. Just pick up in verse 4. John says, I began to weep loudly. I'm in chapter 5, verse 4. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and seven bowls full of, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here's Jesus Christ in the glory of the heavenly throne room, and there's an acknowledgement that he is there receiving worship, for he is worthy of worship. But again, we won't see Jesus again until our text this morning in chapter 19. Let me point out what happens in chapter 16, because that's important. Would you turn there for a moment? There are all kinds of other visions. You remember we've worked through them and done our best to understand them. But we come to chapter 16, and it essentially represents here the seventh trumpet. And underneath the seventh trumpet, we believe, are the seven bowls. And they are the seven bowls of wrath. And the seventh trumpet and the, the, seventh trumpet and the seven bowls all represent the end. All of these events accumulate on one another. Some of them are on top of one another. It's fast-forwarded here at the end. And I want to show you what happens here at the end. Look in chapter 16 of Revelation. Pick it up in verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that is the false religious leader, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, and go abroad to the kings of the whole world, watch this, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then watch this, verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called, what? Armageddon. And then you have chapter 17 and 18, where there's a pause, another interruption, another interregnum, another interval. And there's a vision about, there's a couple of visions about Babylon the godless system of Babylon, and how it exerts such power, but how it will end up being brought low. But we read about Armageddon, and we want to say, well, wait a minute, what happens? Chapter 19 picks this up. Chapter 19, as we're going to see, has all of the armies of the earth under the false system of Babylon and the rule of Antichrist and the influence of the false prophet, all of the armies of earth gather together on the plain of Megiddo, very likely, in Israel and the Middle East, 
in order to conquer God's special people Israel, to destroy them from the face of the earth, another attempted holocaust, and to exalt themselves as the rulers of the earth. And you have what we understand to be the final battle. And what you find in chapter 19, the text we've just read, is the warrior king returns. And if we were to read Revelation in one setting, instead of preaching through it over the course of months, there would be this palpable sense that any of us who are paying attention, we would get to chapter 19, and we would see this rider on a white horse with armies coming out of heaven, and you know what we would say? Finally! Finally! We talked about this some last week, but it's clear in the text again this morning. Finally, the king has come. Finally, the promises will be brought to fruition, as we saw last week. Finally, justice will be done, as we saw last week and we'll see today. Finally, the king has arrived. The return of the warrior king. Two broad divisions in the text this morning. The first is this. When the king returns, the warrior king, the savior king, we will finally see his majesty as it really is. We will finally have evidence and experience. The world, when I say we, the world will experience and see the majesty of the warrior king as it really is. I don't know if you noticed, but when we read these verses a few moments ago, the name of Jesus is not mentioned. Jesus is not there. Christ is not there. But it's unmistakable who this is. Let's work through it one more time. Let me make some comments. Pick it up there in verse 11. By the way, as we come to the Word, as we do every week, I remind you, this is God's Word for us today. Verse 11 John says, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. White horses were symbols of power and conquest and victory. Emperors would ride white horses after their victory in battle. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. Don't you long for this? Everywhere we look these days, we see things that are unfaithful. We see things that are false. But here is one who his very nature is defined as faithfulness and truth. Indeed, his name, faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges, verse 11, he judges and makes war. Can I note that for you? Jesus makes war. You need to file that away. Jesus makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This has to do with his holy, righteous zeal that sees everything. On his head are many diadems. The idea is too many to count. And by the way, do you remember? Do you remember from earlier in Revelation? The dragon, Satan, had seven crowns. The the Antichrist, the beast, had ten crowns. The point of this is Jesus comes. He's got so many crowns, we're not even going to give him a number. He has many diadems. And on his head were many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, implying that as much as we can learn, we will never be able to learn everything. 
Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The image of the winepress is prefigured here. Blood from wrath and judgment. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. It's ironic and fascinating to me that that phrase, also the Word, is in John 1. And then in 1 John 1, he talks about the Word of life. And here, John records the vision of Jesus as the Word of God. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, many commentators think these are angels. But the truth is, angels are spirit beings. They don't need horses. Uh, Well, more about that in a moment. But then beginning in verse 15, you find three Old Testament images. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that's the first, and the sword is that which he uses to strike down the nations, the second image, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, the third image, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, likely exposed because of the way he is sitting on the horse, his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now let me walk you back through this text just with who, with what, and how. Who is this? This is the king. And he arrives in supreme power and majesty This is what we finally see in Revelation 19. We see the majesty of the king. Listen carefully. If you stop with the Gospels, uh, let me go further than that. If you're, the way you deal with the Bible and with the story of Jesus is merely superficial and it only hits the high points of the Gospels, then you will have a truncated view of Jesus. Jesus in his incarnation and in his humility, as glorious and as wonderful as that reality is, is not the whole Jesus. It's not the whole picture. You have these humble origins. Jesus, as an infant on a donkey, headed to Egypt, right? We don't know that, but we assume that. That, you know, in humility, running from Herod. And then later on in his life, at the end of his life, coming into Jerusalem in humility on the foal of a donkey. So you have this humility, and yet what you have here is he's on a white horse as a conqueror. He will return as a warrior. He will return as a conqueror. And there's a sense of tension in all of this that we have when we come to Scripture. And what causes this? It, causes, it is caused by the fact that we tend to be so isolated in our reading and study of the Word of God. We choose our favorite stories. We, we, we hear preaching sometimes that's just hit and miss on, on texts that are, are important or easy to preach or perhaps applicable to the congregation. And what we have to have As you continue to grow, if you're a young person, you need to strive for this. If you're a new believer, you need to strive for this. And if you've known Jesus for 60 years, you still want to experience this, an ever-deepening, an ever-clearer sense of the broad working of God from beginning to end. In fact, let me say it this way, from before the beginning to end. Uh, There are terms for this. But I would just label it this morning, you want a 35,000-foot overview of what God is doing. Because if you zero in just on the healing stories of Jesus, 
then your understanding of living the Christian life is so wrapped up in physical healing that you're going to miss all of the sovereignty of God. If you, on the other hand, if you love the judgment stories, if this is one of your favorite texts and the texts that to come before we're through this morning, then you will find yourself hardened and harsh and uncaring about the souls of lost people. But when you cultivate and develop by faithful study, by thinking in global terms, by, by grasping an understanding of the overflow of biblical revelation from before the beginning to end, you'll have a, a comprehensive but also a holistic view who is Jesus. And he indeed came lowly. He indeed came in humility. He indeed, the Bible says, was rejected by his own, but he will one day return as warrior king. And use that reality as an encouragement for you to come to understand the overarching glories of Jesus Christ. He arrives as the warrior king. Who comes with him? A heavenly cavalry. Angels are present. The Bible tells us that. When Jesus returns, angels will be present. But the language here indicates that those on the horses are resurrected saints. We find this in Revelation 17, 14. We also see the linkage to the white linen, which is in this very chapter we talked about it last week. The marriage supper, the garments for the marriage supper. It's the same terminology. And surprisingly, if you've thought about this, I was challenged to think about it when I was a young person. I'm going to be in this crowd I'm going to be there. And yet the truth is, I'm not a warrior. I'm an observer. I'm not a participant in the warfare, because that's what we're going to see before we're through. It's the king who makes war, and we merely accompany him. What is that that he does? He makes war. This is the decisive, although it's not the final, but this is the decisive blow against the forces of evil. Over the next few weeks, we'll find out why it's not necessarily the final blow against the forces of evil, but it is clearly the decisive blow against the forces of evil. And let me just suggest to you, if you care about prophecy, I'll mention this and I'll move on, that there is not one bit of this language that allows for some kind of gradual victory of the kingdom over time. Our post-millennial, our theonomous brothers understand the kingdom of God is growing into greatness until the kingdom of God exists and Jesus comes back. That cannot be read into this kind of text. Jesus comes back, and as we're going to see, in his return, he decisively wars against rebellion and brings about victory. And how does he do that? Look at it again. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is the word of God from his mouth. The active agency of Messiah, the king. This is the same thing we saw in creation. How did creation, how was it accomplished? God, what did he do? Spoke. And when he spoke, creation took place. And the word of God not only creates, but it also destroys. And the sword that comes out of the mouth of the warrior king is the word of God, which, as we're going to see in the text, destroys his foes. One author said it this way, the words of Messiah have death-dealing power against his foes. Now, this is a good time to talk about symbolism. Because here you have this image of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's clearly a symbol. 
but it's a symbol that means something. It's a symbol that has to have some kind of literal representation. The truth is, we need to admit this. There are some fantastic images in the book of Revelation, even in this chapter. Very often these images are co-opted by our popular culture in strange movies, in, 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 in horror kind of films. And there are some gruesome details before we're through this morning, I need to warn you. And therefore, here's what often happens. Many, sometimes, can I say most, so-called churches, they relegate this to fantasy. At the very least, they consider it sentimentalism. Again, back to the Revelation as a travelogue. These are just pictures that are meant to evoke some kind of emotions. But none of this is going to happen. This is what some will say. I agree with the great preacher S. Lewis Johnson who said, there are wicked, well-poisoning, modernist herds of lying preachers. He's right. And that's always been this way. Look at Jeremiah 5. The prophet says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so. What an indictment. Why are people going to those churches? Because that's what people are looking for. But then the next phrase at the end of the verse says, but what will you do when the end comes? If all you fed yourself on is feel-good platitudes, if you've taken the Word of God and molded it and twisted it into just kind of some kind of imaginary fantasy kind of image that, that is to evoke some kind of emotion, if you've relegated the clear predictions of Scripture to something that will never really happen, the prophet's speaking to you, what will you do when the end comes? No, these are symbols, but they are all symbols of what one commentator calls real objective events in future history. Real events that will happen someday. The great preacher Donald J. Barnhouse said, The battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. And revealed here is our warrior king's majesty. And all of this is portrayed in pretty shocking images. Let me just warn you. Get ready as we move into verse 17 to the end of the chapter. But they are intentionally shocking because the second point this morning. And that is that when the king returns, we will also, we will finally see our rebellion for what it really is. So the majesty of the king is finally revealed. But we also have to look one more time. We have to look at, at the evil of rebellion, of what our rebellion really looks like. The depth of evil, it's evidenced. And it's evidenced in these verses we're getting ready to read, which are terrible and which are gruesome. And they indicate the eternal death sentence, especially on the Antichrist and the false prophet. But listen carefully, folks. Evil is evil. Sin is sin. And any disobedience, any rebellion is sin. And therefore, we should remind ourselves as we read these texts, as we take comfort in the gospel, we should also remind ourselves that this is the seriousness with which God looks at our sin as well. This is what rebellion looks like to God. This is the, the action 
that is called forth from the holiness of God, not only because of the rebellion of the Antichrist and the rebellion of the false prophet, but also because of the rebellion that you and I chased this week, even as God's people. And because of Jesus, we won't receive that judgment because he took it for us. But could anyone really argue that that should cause us to be cavalier and light about how serious our God sees our sin? When the king returns, we will finally see not only his majesty, but also our rebellion as it really is. And so, if you watched my preview of picking up Revelation again, I said we were leaving behind gory details. I spoke too soon. And this makes me uncomfortable what I'm getting ready to read. I'm one of those people out of my generation, you know, we were the generation that first experienced uh, horror flicks, you know, slasher films. And I want to tell you, I have never sat through a slasher film. The blood and the gore just makes me sick. I cannot handle it. And yet I've got to read these texts to you. And it's pretty bad. Let's look at it. Beginning in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, likely all kinds of men, both free and slave, both great and small. This is, you recognize, if you were here last week, This is a macabre, gruesome parody of the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride, God's people, have an unending supper of glory. But those who are under God's judgment, they're in for another kind of supper. And they're on the menu. That's what it says. They're on the menu. They're bird food. They're carrying dinner. They're feasted on by scavengers. As, as we read these words, I, I, I'm jumping ahead, but let me, just, let me just tell you, as squeamish as this makes us, you need, and, and as the tendency is to say, well, surely this can't be literal. Well, then let me just say this. Whatever the reality is, is worse. That's the way symbolism is. But I've moved ahead. Look in verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the secular godless ruler in the last days. And down in verse 20, there's also a reference to the false prophet. He's involved in this too, the false religious leader of the last days. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered. That's back in Revelation 16, remember? With their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. By the way, these are called destroyers of the earth in chapter 11. So we're reading this and we're anticipating this is going to be a stunning battle. Watch what happens. Verse 20. And the beast was captured. And if you love military history, you stop and you go, wait, what? Where's the battle? The beast was captured. And with it, the beast, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
And let me tell you, they are thrown alive, but they are not annihilated because as we'll see in a few weeks, they show up at the end of chapter 20, still suffering in the lake of fire. Verse 21, and the rest, in other words, the armies, other than Antichrist and the beast, or Antichrist and the false prophet, and the rest were slain, that is, they were killed. The lake of fire still awaits them at the end of chapter 20. They were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So that's how the battle happens. In the same way that the Word of God spoke and creation happened, the Word of God will speak, and His words will destroy the armies in this terrible, gruesome, last battle of Armageddon. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. I have an idea. This is one of those things where I'm going to throw out and you're free to reject it. So you might want to jot that down. But I wonder if there are images here of the revenge of creation. You know, the Bible talks about how creation groans how creation is under the curse and under the fall. I wonder if there's an element here where the birds of the air take their revenge against the rebellion that has brought all of this heartache, all of this disaster, all of this death, all of this suffering. That's just my idea. But it's a gruesome scene. The Antichrist and the false prophet they are thrown into the lake of fire, and they are its first inhabitants. But that's appropriate, because remember what Jesus said, Matthew 25, referring to what he will say at the end of time. He will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the reason the lake of fire exists. This finally will be the demonstration of the justice that we cry for. This finally will be the satisfaction of the discomfort we have when so much injustice driven by power, when so much seems to be successful and seems to escape recompense. There is finally here a rebellion demonstrated for what it is. And this dramatic, long-awaited battle the details and the specifics are omitted, probably because they are too terrible to envision. Yet, watch this. This is important. It is perfectly compatible with truth and justice. Because, folks, God is not mocked. And it doesn't matter to me whether you're talking about the intellectuals in our day and age or the politicians in our day and age. It doesn't matter to me whether you're talking about Putin in Moscow or whether you're talking about the movie executives in Hollywood. And it doesn't matter to me if you're talking about the petty dictators and the bloodthirsty rulers that have lived throughout all of time. So many people, if you look at history, it appears that God is mocked. It appears they get away with it. And one of the things the book of Revelation tells us is that is not so. This is no rush to judgment. That's the other danger of reading this text. If we read it superficially 
And we read about God calling the birds of the air to feast on the armies of the last days. You think, well, that seems a bit harsh. It seems like God ought to be more patient. God ought to be more loving. This is no rush to judgment. This is after centuries of mercy and grace and patience and waiting and warnings. This is what our rebellion really is. Now, before we move to the conclusion, we have to deal with a problem. The problem is found in all kinds of writings and all kinds of positions, and it is pervasive today. It's the idea that the Jesus of the New Testament is quite different from Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the idea that Jesus, He lived a life and He manifested a kingdom that is all love and tolerance Whereas you look at the Old Testament and there is judgment and bloodshed and wrath. Some commentators leverage this idea. One says, all of this has little to do with the Christ of the Gospels. The same commentator says, a few paragraphs later, this bloodthirsty picture is far more in line with Old Testament apocalyptic expectations than with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. As though there's some bifurcation, as though there's some dichotomy, as though you have an Old Testament God, but then you have Jesus who is finally coming and He is the New Testament God that we want because He is the God of tolerance and love. This new soft Jesus, this Jesus who is tolerant, who is the Jesus of unconditional love, He is everywhere today in people's imaginations. The idea today is not, I come just as I am, but rather the idea is, I come just as I am and I intend to stay. No, not according to Scripture. In fact, all of Scripture, and not according to the appearance of this King. Do I need to remind you, the book of Revelation is the Jesus of the New Testament. The same one who is love is also holiness. And when he encounters the disobedience of his creation, there is wrath and judgment. So whatever tensions that we imagine between Jesus' love and God's holy wrath, all of these are indeed resolved in the Bible And I could take the rest of the day to walk you through the examples of that. But let me show you primarily where they are resolved. All of this, the tension between the love of Jesus and the wrath of God the Trinity, all of this is resolved on the cross. It's when Jesus offers his life in death, he does so for a reason. Not merely and only for the love of the world, but because of sin and rebellion, all of the world is under the just wrath of the Trinity. These many diadems in chapter 19, verse 12, that he wears when he comes, they are to be contrasted with another crown that he wore. Do you remember? It was a crown of thorns. And there he suffered, and there he died. And in suffering and dying, again, I'm trying to give you a sense of the 35,000-foot overview What this was, it was the way in which a holy God justifies rebels that deserve this kind of dinner, this kind of supper. They deserve to be on the menu. 
And at the end of time, the impenitent will be. But this is how God takes people like that and declares them righteous. It's because His perfect Son was willing to take our place. The old hymn writer said it in a glorious way. Regarding Calvary, he said, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, hear on Calvary. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. And this is the gospel. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, You must respond. No one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. You must either respond in repentance and faith, or one day you will respond in condemnation and judgment. Look at this carefully. Either the returning king is your savior, or one day he will be your judge. That's what Revelation 19 tells us. We find here finally revealed His glorious majesty. We also see revealed the depth of any rebellion against Him. And either this King who will one day return, He is your Savior, your Forgiver, your Lord, or He will be your Holy Judge. Today's takeaway. Worship the King as Savior or fear Him as judge. Let's pray together. Father, Your Word here is clear. Jesus is not merely the infant holy, infant lowly that we sing about Christmas time. He is not merely lowly and gentle as he did claim himself to be, but he is also righteous and holy, and one day he will return. And we see in this anticipation of his return, his majesty and we see the depth of our own rebellion in the way He brings about judgment, terrifying judgment, both temporal and eternal. So, Father, what we find here today, impress upon our hearts, we find the ground to give You glory for the greatness of our Savior, and also we find ground to be passionate about the mission that you've left for us to declare with faithfulness and fidelity both the holiness of God and your deep, incomprehensible love. Remind us we are here on mission and make us faithful as we strive to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.